0: once again. Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. Each week we read through a selection of sermons from Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, and each week we zero in on one particular sermon. Our friends at Media Gratiae then broadcast those uh, podcasts and uh, distribute those sermons so that you can follow along either with the weekly scheme of reading, one a day, or with the one a week. That we zero in on. You can find all this on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. Or you can go to mediagratii.org podcasts. And there you can find a way to sign up for the weekly newsletter, which we send out with a copy of the featured sermon and some helpful uh, comments as to where you can find various things uh, in terms of further reading and the podcast material. Spurgeon himself was born in 1834 and died in 1892, known uh, to some extent during his day but certainly afterwards by those who appreciated him as the Prince of Preachers, a convinced particular Baptist, uh, believing in the sovereignty of God in the salvation of his people and preaching Christ and him crucified with particular fervour and ability. The sermon then we're looking at this week is called Fellowship with God and it's based on 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and it was delivered on the 15th of September 1861 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It is sermon 409 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, and uh, this week then 409 through to 415 are our sermons, with 409 being our featured sermon. And next week, 416 through to 422, with 402, uh, sorry, 420 being our featured sermon, Abraham and the ravenous birds. I hope that'll wet your, your appetite in that respect. But then, fellowship with God. Let's plough on. For in this sermon, Spurgeon is clearly uh, he hits the ground running, we might say, and he has a, a slightly longer introduction than he sometimes does. And again, if you're becoming familiar with this output, you'll know that there are times when, after a couple of sentences, Spurgeon's right in on his breakdown of the text. Other times there's uh, a lot of uh, development in the introduction out of which then he'll draw his outline. This has got uh, more to tell us at the front end. Fellowship with God was one of the richest privileges of unfallen man. So long as he was willing and obedient, Adam ate the fat of the land and among the rich dainties and wine on the lees well refined of which his soul was a partaker. First and foremost... The blessing that he enjoyed was unbroken communion with God, his Father, and his Friend. Spurgeon's point is that that fellowship is restored in Christ. That under the dispensation of the second Adam, we now have in all its fullness that fellowship which was lost to us by the sin and disobedience of our first federal head. The uh, realities, then, the spiritual joys of this he draws out from the experience of uh, the Apostle John, the beloved disciple. Christ was gone. It was no more possible to hear his voice, to see him with eyes, or to handle him with hands, and yet the Apostle John had not lost his fellowship with Christ, though he knew him no more after the flesh. Now he knew him after a nobler sort, and his fellowship was no less real no less close, less sweet or less divine than it had been when he had walked and talked with him and been privileged to eat and drink with him at that last sacred feast. So John is able to say, truly our fellowship is, not was, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting even at this point is that Spurgeon is actually doing a little bit of his exegesis in the introduction. Just drawing out some of these threads. And this is where he's perhaps often thought of as the inheritor of the Puritans, uh, because this is a, a typically Puritan approach to expound the text, or at least to exegete the text, then to draw out the main doctrine, and then to unpack it in various ways. And so, says Spurgeon, I hope you can say our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Did the Apostle John need to say truly, as much as though some doubted or denied it? We also need to make the same affirmation. He tells us often the doctrinalist, the man who thinks more of the doctrine of Christ than the person of Christ, and who couples with that the conceit that he himself must be right and all others wrong, because we may not be able to endorse all the heights of his doctrine, or, on the other hand, may not be able to join with him in his legal statements, That man says, oh, these people, there are many of them, but they can have no fellowship with God because they do not sound our shibboleth. That is, they don't, uh, originally, they don't pronounce the right thing in the right way, and so they are exposed as not truly belonging to us. They don't join with us in every separate dogma which we teach, and therefore the Lord is not with them. Ah, says Spurgeon. But we can say to them, brothers, we're content to leave those doctrinal disputes to the great arbiter of right and wrong. We formed our opinion of Scripture. We hope, as in the sight of God and as before the Most High, we can say we have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. And so Spurgeon lodges it as a protest, and possibly uh, it sounds like against the hyper Calvinists of his day, that truly, yes, truly, our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ and then he says what about the experimentalist what about the man who attaches undue importance to his own particular form of experience while this may be the same kind of problem but just from a different angle you haven't experienced human depravity like like the the complainer has he can condemn you utterly because you don't give prominence to a certain favorite but unhealthy standard of spiritual conviction. Again that would be typical of hyper-Calvinism to insist upon a particular measure or degree almost prescribable or measurable before you can say you truly know God. And yet says Spurgeon the true believer can say even if he doesn't have precisely the same nature or degree of experience truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And so says Spurgeon we're back with the text lengthy introduction but now boosh these two points a quiet investigation leading to a most solemn affirmation that truly our fellowship with is with the father and with his son jesus christ and then secondly in the former part of the text a most affectionate desire leading to appropriate action that you may have fellowship with us and so that which we have seen and heard we declare to you worth pausing to note at this point that Spurgeon is happy for the sake of the sermon to turn those two elements of the text uh, the other way around he's not playing fast and loose with that fast and loose with that sorry but what he wants to do is to uh, really deal with the substance of it that our fellowship is with the father And then, as it were, step back and say, now, why is it then that John would say that which we have seen and heard we declare to you? And this really helps us to understand that Spurgeon isn't preparing a Bible study. This isn't an exegetical lecture. He has prepared a sermon and his desire is that the truth would grip our hearts. And so he's preaching in order to grasp our attention and to lead us into the practical application of what he has to say so then i said it's a it's a an earnest sermon it's a zealous sermon but notice how he begins let us in all quietude and stillness of heart talk this matter over with one another do we really have then this fellowship with the father and with his son jesus christ so this is if you like white heat preaching This isn't uh, bluster and noise, this is a man who is dealing with intense earnestness with his congregation and he wants them to feel the heavenly force of what he has to say. First of all we have fellowship with the father and for that there must be concord or agreement or union of heart. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Fellowship requires likeness, there must be wishes, desires that are the same. We must pursue the same ends and welded together in the intention to effect the same purposes. Are we at one then with God the Father in these things? And Spurgeon pulls out these elements first of all: his eternal purposes. I read the book of God. And I find that he has ordained Christ to be head of the church and has chosen to himself a number that no man can number. He is a God of distinguishing and discriminating grace. Here is sovereign mercy. And in the eternal purposes, that choice that God makes of a people from before the foundation of the world the believer the true believer rejoices in his fellowship with god and says yes you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent but you've revealed them even to babes for so it seemed good in your sight and yes we we enter in to god's sovereign choice again we have fellowship with god in the object for the purpose was for, for which the purpose was first formed that is his own glory He has chosen a people for himself that he may be magnified and we entirely sympathize with God in the object. It is our whole desire the highest aspiration of our spirit when most enlarged and inflamed that God may be glorified that the Lord may be lifted up in all he is and does and we have fellowship with him then in seeking his glory. Furthermore we have fellowship with God in the plan by which he carries out that purpose of obtaining his own glory in accordance with his eternal purposes and you feel now the the building weight of Spurgeon's reasoning. It pleased God to send forth his son to suffer and die in the place of the ungodly. It pleased the father to appoint this stone and though the builders rejected it yet God made it the headstone of the corner and we delight in it. We we are pleased at the way God has done this. It strikes us as being the wisest, the most gracious, the most glorious scheme that could have been devised. If it approves itself to God, it approves itself to us. If he chose this as the plan of divine operation, we adore his choice. We reverence both the wisdom and the love which planned and carried out the design. But still again, and, and again there's this peeling back of the layers what about the most prominent characteristics of that plan throughout the whole way of salvation you've seen displayed the justice and the mercy of god each with undimmed luster you've seen his grace in forgiving the sinner but his holiness in avenging sin upon the substitute his truthfulness acting both in threatening and in promising There is not a single blot in the whole divine plan of salvation upon any of the attributes of the Most High. And so you rejoice in the characteristics of that plan, and you have fellowship with God in these things. In its purpose, in its object, in the plan, in its characteristics, the believer in Christ has fellowship or sweet concord, union, and agreement with the Father but he goes on a little further, also in the objects of his love. When two persons love the same thing, their affection becomes a tie between them. And so it is with the father who says of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we add, yes, he is our beloved savior in whom also we are well pleased. It is written, it pleased the father to bruise him. And do we not feel that we found a divine pleasure and satisfaction in considering his wounds, his agonies and his death? Spurgeon doesn't mean here that we revel in these things or we're pleased to see the son suffer. But we, are, we acknowledge that there is a, a marvel here. that There is something here that, that, that we approve because by it God is magnified. And the father's determined then also to glorify his son. And that is the fondest thought of our hearts. So in this, then, we have fellowship with the Father, seeing that we are both agreed in loving the Son. And what about the saints? Not just the, uh, the people, of the, the Son of God, but also then the people of God, that we delight in his people. They are precious to him, and so they are precious to us. Uh, Spurgeon, you can hear, is, is just bubbling over with some of these things. Can you not protest, O oh, my heart, that the excellent of the earth are all your delight? Where they dwell, I would. Where they die, I would die. Their portion, my portion. Their God, my God, forever and ever. Delighting in God means delighting in God's people as well as in God's beloved Son. But Spurgeon moves forward, not just concord of heart, but converse or mutual communication in on the substance, I suppose we might say, of that agreement. And may the Holy Spirit then, here's the experimental edge, may the Holy Spirit grant that we may not say a word which is not strictly verified by our experience. We have had converse with the divine father. Now Spurgeon's careful here. We haven't seen him. We haven't beheld his shape. It's not been our experience like Moses to be put in the cleft of the rock to see the back parts of jehovah and yet we've spoken to him we've said to him abba father we've saluted him as our father who is in heaven we've had access to him we have found him through the precious blood of christ we've come to his feet we've put our cause before him we have filled our mouth with arguments and he has shed abroad by his spirit his love in our hearts it has not been one-way communication We felt the spirit of adoption and he has showed to us the loving kindness of a tender father. We have felt though no sound was heard. We have known though no angelic messenger gave us witness that his spirit bore witness with ours that we were born of God. We've embraced him, brought near. Now Spurgeon is uh, avoiding here some of the uh, excesses of um, charismatic thinking. He's, he's not suggesting audible voices or visible experiences, but he is demanding that we understand this intimate, real, substantial, experimental communion with God by his spirit. And then the very thing which is his happiness has been ours. What delights him delights us. That is holiness, goodness, mercy, loving kindness... Our miseries are our sins but our joys are what please God. We're not so bothered by our afflictions as we are by our impurities. Holiness is our pleasure, purity our delight and if we could be perfect as he is perfect, if we were free from all iniquity then this would be the very happiness that we enjoy, uh, the, the, the highest delight that we could anticipate. And then If the happiness of the Father is to have communion with the persons of the Trinity, if the Father delights in the Son, even so do we delight in him. So not just with the Father, remember, but with the Son. Here's the second element. And Jesus, he says, you are the son of our soul. You are to us the river of which we drink, the bread of which we eat, the air we breathe. You are the basis of our life and the summit of it. You are the prop, the mainstay, the pillar, the beauty, the joy of our being. This is from the heart of Spurgeon. This is one of the reasons why we're loving to work through the sermons of such a preacher. It is because he is taken up with God in Christ. And he's working out then these things. The father's employment is our employment. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you or of all of you. He knows whom he's chosen. We cannot join with the Father in upholding all worlds. There's much we cannot do, but we can do good. He does good to all His creatures, and we can also. He bears witness to His Son, and we do also. And it's this that carries Him then on into this fellowship with the Son, that our hearts are united to Him. We love His charming name, its music to our ears and, and Spurgeons sort of rolling on then from one point into the next you men and brothers Satan may say what he will and our sense may seem to contradict the statements but our soul follows hard after Jesus Christ he is to us all our salvation and all our desire our hearts are united to him and we have fellowship also with him in his sufferings. Yes, we haven't gone to the extent to which he suffered. We haven't resisted unto blood, striving against sin. But we do know what it's like to uh, fight, as it were, alongside him, to be partakers of his sufferings, to be conformed at least in measure unto his death. From the manger to the cross, from the cross to the millennium, there should be in the Christian's experience a blessed fellowship. We've been crucified together with him but we've risen together with him in newness of life and our fellowship has assumed also a practical form in that the same desires and aspirations which were in Christ when he was on the earth are in us now. We feelingly uttered the very words of Christ do you not know that I must be about my father's business When we've been wearied in the master's service, we found such good cheer in it that we could say with him, I have meat to eat that you do not know of. The zeal of God's house has eaten me up and we've been ready to suffer with him that we might be glorified together with him. We've thirsted and panted to bring others up out of their degradation and fall till we felt that if we might be offered ourselves, if the sacrifice of our souls might be saving, we'd be willing to have it said he saved others, himself he cannot save. Oh, there's an intensity here. Can you imagine the force of a man taken up with Christ in this way, and directing these holy words toward the hearts of the people in front of him he will have prayed over these things he will have prayed over these people he will be in dependence upon the holy spirit and he's speaking from his own experience this is what we are this is what we do this is how we feel and again remember fellowship requires converse or communication and yes we have we have enjoyed the mercies of Christ toward us. We have known, as it were, his, his, his arms about us. We have leapt right out of the body to embrace him, at least we thought so, from an excess of joy and that too when there was nothing in the world to give us content. Our lowest experiences here have been our highest ones of the mercies of God in Christ toward us. And he says, I hope you've had some few of these inflowings of love when you've eaten angel's food you've forgotten the dry bread and the moldy crusts that you had in the wallet of your experience and you ate the new corn of the kingdom and you drank the new wine with your blessed and divine master you didn't travel in rumbling chariots but your soul was like the swiftly speeding chariots of Aminadab you were lifted up and your fellowship was with the father and with his son Jesus Christ and perhaps we say oh God the half has not been told us we just don't enjoy some of the things which this man seemed to and Spurgeon's point is but you may if you are Christ's these are the things that you can anticipate and pursue and if you you have them in any measure you ought to stir them up and press on in them and that then bubbles over then in this second main point, an affectionate desire leading to appropriate effort. Uh, just to be practical for a moment, uh, the, the his lead into that second point is we've got but a few minutes remaining for the second head, which might very well demand an entire discourse. Let those of us who preach and teach note here Spurgeon's wisdom, his practical sense when it comes to the act of preaching." caught up with the help of the Holy Spirit I think that comes across on the page in the first point he's given a measure of free reign to that he's entered into it helped he has submitted to the help and he's worked out perhaps with greater expansiveness and depth than he'd anticipated the nature of this communion with God this fellowship with God and uh, as father and God the son and he's quite willing to do that But he now recognises that he needs to perhaps get a little more of a grip on the second part of his sermon and that he cannot be so expansive as he was in the first part. It's lovely then to see the way that in the very act of preaching, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he manages these elements of his discourse and now drives with laser focus. So rather than this feeling like it's uh, a bit of a, uh, a cut-off, part of his sermon as if we've lost something rather he makes this then a, a focused thrust toward the soul what is the affectionate desire that leads to appropriate effort in the light of our fellowship with the father and with the son it is that others might have fellowship with us having found the honey we cannot eat it alone having tasted that the Lord is gracious. It's one of the first instincts of the newborn nature to send us out crying, ho everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy milk, wine and milk without money and without price. We want others to have fellowship with us in everything except our sins. We want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. We want them to know the blessings from on high that come in Christ Jesus. We wish to gather up all in one, in everything which is lovely and of good repute, everything which is happy, ennobling, divine and everlasting. We want other people to know what we know. Is that true? Is that true of us? have we so enjoyed God that we cannot imagine not telling others that they may come and enjoy him themselves. The blessings of salvation don't make us selfish but selfless. The good things of knowing God in Christ make us eager that others would come. There's such an abundance, such a wealth, such a richness that there is in Christ that not only do we not need to hoard it for ourselves, but we can distribute it readily. And so this desire leads the child of God not only to say, I wish it were so, but I will act that it may be so. We tell others what we've seen and what we've heard. And Spurgeon says, I'm going to do that this morning. And if you know anything of Spurgeon, you'll know that he loves to tell the story of how Christ was pleased to save him. And not just that moment when he was seated in the church building and he heard the man say to him, you young man, you look very miserable, you need to look to Christ and be saved. It's the the whole range of his experience and he's not trying to do what he's warned against doing and demanding that everyone have the same precise kind of experience but he wants to know what wants people to know what Christ will be to them he's not pointing to himself but from himself to Christ and so he says i've known and seen that Christ is one who is ready to forgive you able to forgive you how do i know because i know the hardness of my own heart and i know that when Christ came i was forgiven one glimpse of a tearful eye at a crucified saviour and that moment without a pause the burden rolled away the guilt was gone peace of mind in the place of despair and I could sing I'm forgiven I'm forgiven Spurgeon has known the burden of his sins and he's known what it is to have Christ take away his sin and not just to take away the the punishment of sin but to take away the power of sin You've received your pardon, yes, but you find Christ also willing to keep your soul from sin. O drunkard, he says, he can make you sober. Unchaste man, he can make you virtuous. There's no lust which his arm cannot subdue, no mighty sin which he cannot drive out. He shall make you run in the way of his commandments with delight. You shall not turn aside either to the right hand or to the left. This is the power of Christ, and this then is part of that fellowship that we can enjoy with him. Oh, and he's now in that mode that he sometimes goes into, the sort of the question and the answer. Oh, but if he upheld me for a while, I should never be able to hold on. Well, says Spurgeon, I've lived long enough as a Christian to tell you this, that the child believed and the child now testifies that God is faithful and has not once forsaken nor left him, but preserved him. And he says, I, I wish I were older, that I could say it more completely, that my, my father, my grandfather rather, was once sitting beside, behind me in the pulpit and he said, my grandson can tell you that, but I can bear witness to it. I'm past three score years and ten, but still God has been faithful and true. So yes, Christ can forgive you yes Christ can uh, take you out from under the bondage of sin yes Christ will preserve you always and Christ will grant you that joy in religion beyond anything you can dream of he is a good master says Spurgeon whom I have served it's a blessed faith that he has bestowed upon me it is a uh, a blessed hope that is yielded so that I would not change my blessed estate for all the world calls good or great, and while my faith can keep her hold, I envy not the sinner's gold. Oh, he said, if I had to die like a dog and there were no hereafter, I would still prefer to be a Christian and the humblest Christian minister to being a king or an emperor. Why? I am persuaded there are more delights in Christ, yes, more joy in one glimpse of his face, than is to be found in all the praises of this harlot world and in all the delights which it can yield to us in its sunniest and brightest days. I am persuaded that what he has been till now, he will be to the end. Where he's begun a work, he will carry it on. Christ's cross is a hope that we can die by, which can take us down to the grave without a fear, make us shout in the midst of the swelling waters of Jordan can make us transported with delight even when bowed down with physical pain or nervous distress. Yes, in Christ there is that which can make us triumph over the gloomiest terrors of grim death and make us rejoice in the darkest of tempests which can blacken the grave. So trust in the Lord for our testimony and that of all his people is that he is worthy to be trusted. Can we say that? That's something that you don't need a pulpit to say. That's a testimony that you can bear to any friend or family member. Come to Christ that he may be to you everything he has been to me. And so you see then the, the wisdom, the value of the way that Spurgeon handles that text to make the uh, the first part of it the conclusion of his sermon, To uh, to hold together the logic of the text but still to drive it home in that particular way to build the foundation of communion with god and then to to plead on the back of that what john pleads that the the fellowship that we have may be enjoyed by others also well i trust that this makes us hungry for god and for his son for the father and for our beloved savior this makes us long to know more of the things for which Spurgeon longed, but insofar as we do know them, and if we're children of God, we do, and we can know them more, to ask that others also would be brought in with us, and with that desire in our hearts to go out and speak out of our own experience, the very truth of God and the fellowship that we can have with the Father and with his Son in this so great salvation and then on next week, if God wills, to Sermon 420, Abraham and the Ravenous Birds. And it's a a Spurgeon classic. The whole thing is more or less an illustration. But I hope, uh, without wetting your appetite too much, that you'll join us again, and that that will be a blessed time for us all, as we hear again from the heart of Spurgeon, which, as you've seen in this podcast, is just so full of God in Christ. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.